Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Bertrand uh, Russell, who I quoted last week in a different context, but I'll quote him again right now, said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless, which is why we started with God last week, which is why Genesis starts with, in the beginning, God. Now, I'm going to slow down a little bit for this. Uh, In fact, I have far fewer pages than I usually do as we're going to slow down and see if we can, we can truly grasp what we need to uh, get here. God created us for his own sake, not ours. Much of our preaching often in the church of the West today talks about it's all about the self. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is God created us for his sake. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, All things were created by him and for him. Let's say that all together, all right? All things were created by him and for him. He made us for himself. Why is that? Did he need us because there was something incomplete in him? Did he create us because he was lonely and needed fellowship with others? Scripture reveals that God did not create us because he lacked something within himself. He doesn't need us to be completely happy or fulfilled. God has always been happy. He's always been fulfilled. So that's not why he created us. In fact, in Acts 17, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives to us. It's not the other way around in terms of what he needs intrinsically. He doesn't have any intrinsic needs. They're all met within him. Long before there was mankind, God was was there. And he was happy. He was joyful. He was not alone. And we're going to see that in a moment. So why did he create us then? Well, follow me. The Bible says that God is love. Have you ever wondered what that means? I have. (laughs) I've sometimes wondered, what does that mean, God is love? I don't go to my wife and say, honey, you're love. She's loving. She gives me love, I give her love, but I am not love. (laughs) I'm not the personification of love. She isn't the personification of love. What does it mean? It doesn't say that God loves. It says that he is love. Love cannot exist without someone to love. There has to be an object for love to exist. Would you agree with that? If you stick me in a wilderness somewhere, or you stick somebody in a wilderness somebody, uh, somewhere for 25, 50 years, and uh, then uh, you, you, uh, you say, that person is lo- loving. They're completely isolated. How do you know they're loving? 
They have no object to love. But God is love, it says. Love cannot exist without someone to love, yet it always existed before mankind was made. God couldn't give us something that he didn't already have. Would you agree with that? He, he can't make us more than what he is. Would you agree with that? Is that logical? That suggests that there have been multiple persons within one God. That suggests that. That's a, it's a logical deduction. We can reason that through as we have been. Now, if God has eternally existed as three persons, it would be surprising to find no indications of this in the Old Testament, wouldn't it? I mean, if, he, if that's how God exists as three persons, you would expect that somewhere there should be some hint of it in the Old Testament. Well, right in the opening of, chapter, uh, of the first chapter of Genesis, there's this clear teaching of togetherness of persons in the Godhead. In fact, we're confronted with it in the very first verse of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word here for God is not the singular L, E-L, but the plural Elohim. Isn't that interesting? Yet it is followed by the verb created in the singular. Now, isn't that interesting? That means, it's like saying, we am going to church. Would you say, we am going to church? <laughs> Do you say that? Or I mean, maybe you didn't finish grammar. <laughs> would you say, we am going to church? No, you would say, I am going to church, or we are what? Are going to church. But here in Genesis, it says, we am created. <laughs> it says, God in the plural, created in the singular. Isn't that interesting? Now, uh, this, that's grammatically wrong, but theologically, it's correct, as we're going to find out. God was intentional about what he was saying. Some suggest it refers to the plural of majesty. I've heard that for many years, but, uh, you know, a form of speech a king would use in saying, for example, we are pleased to grant your request, or, you know, where, where he's saying it as a plural, but really he's saying, I am pleased to grant you your request. But he uses it in the plural. We sometimes talk like that, too. I sometimes talk like that when I'm talking about our church. Even if I've done something, I'll say we. Does that make sense? But there's no evidence of such use in the Hebrew Old Testament of such usage. And the plural can be, can't be referring to God and his angels. Um, as we'll see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, 26. Because we see another hint of it. Then it says, then God said, let what? Us make man in our image. It can't be angels because we're not made in, in, the, in the image of an angel, are we? We're made in the image of God. That's what it says in verse 27. 
So God created man in his own image. So it can't be, so we, we're first, it can't be angels. So we're, the first thing we see is that it can't be, it's not plural, uh, like the plural of majesty. And it's not angels. The plural here is, referring, uh, is clearly referring to God in a multiplicity of persons. Multiple persons, yet one God. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. You'll see in a, in a moment, well, in a few moments. I'm never that fast. <laughs> You'll see why that's important. But let's develop it further. Uh, in the story of Gideon, Judges chapter 6, Israel did evil. God gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. And they were so oppressive that the Israelites lived in mountain clefts and caves. Whenever the uh, Israelites planted crops to eat, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they would just come in hordes and they would just destroy everything, plunder everything, take all the crops and uh, the Israelites were in, in tremendous trouble. And they cry, it says they cried out to the Lord. Well, God responded to their cries. And he sent an angel of the Lord. See what happens. Judges chapter 6. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. Speaking of someone else, right? The angel of the Lord is saying, The Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor, and Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, and he's talking in the sense of somebody out there, if he's with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now look what it says. And the Lord turned to him and said, wait, wait a minute. Who's sitting over there? It says that the angel of the Lord came, and they're talking about the Lord out there, God, somewhere. These two are doing that. Angel of the Lord and Gideon are talking about this God somewhere, Lord somewhere. And then all at once it says... The Lord turned to him. Wait a minute. There's a suggestion there that we got, we got two persons here that are really the Lord or God. There's that one out there that they've been talking about. And now the one that was sitting here called the angel of the Lord turns to him and he is the Lord. And there's many of those kinds of examples. Well, there's a good number of those examples. We don't have time to go through them all, but I'm just giving you a sampling. I want to go to another one. I want to I talk to you about a riddle. You're going to have to think. How many of you like riddles? Good. I don't. I'm never good at them. <laughs> but I'll help you think through this riddle. The religious leaders were trying to trip up Jesus with difficult questions. They did it a lot. And he had just, uh, he had just uh, turned some, some of their... They, they tried to trip him up in different ways, and he, boy, he, had a, he, he was so wise. And he understood the scriptures so well, and he would just turn what they were trying to do on their own heads. It's amazing. 
reading it. Sometimes you smile when you read the Gospels, and you see that. Makes you happy, doesn't it? That you're following a God that can't be tripped up by fools. And uh, so they, <laughs> one finally asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Oh, you all know that one, right? And let's read it all together. And he said to him, everybody reading together, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, that's a good answer. Incredible answer. And then Jesus said, well, you had a riddle for me. I answered it. Now I'm going to turn around and I'm going to give you a riddle. And here's Jesus' riddle. Let's keep reading. I'll read it for you now. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, the son of David. He said to them, Well, then, how is it that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? He's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, precisely. Those were his scriptures, right? Those were their scriptures. They didn't have New Testament. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, so he's saying um, that this is God's word, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my... Here's the quote from Psalm 110.1. And get your thinking caps out now very carefully. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Under, under the feet. Yeah. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? He's saying, if what David is saying is that he is David's God, then how can he be David's son at the same time? Is that a good riddle or is that a good riddle? Do you like that riddle? Oh, let's see what they can do with that one. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Don't you like that? <laughs> oh, I need Jesus beside me more often, I tell you. Wow. Sometimes you guys come with, uh, to me with tough questions, and uh, I just say, go see Chris. <laughs> now, here's Jesus' question. Who, whose son is Messiah? That's the question there, right? And the Pharisees answer, and you can see it underlined. What's the answer? Son of David. Were they correct, yes or no? Yes, they were correct. Very good. For Samuel 7, uh, Davidic covenant, we'll talk about all that kind of stuff further on down the line. God promised that David would have uh, a line uh, on, on, on his throne forever, it says. That's amazing. And not only that, um, 
I had some more passages here. I can't find them. But anyway, uh, there's, oh yeah, in Jeremiah there's another one. There's one in Ezekiel. But there's a number of passages where, it, I mean, the Old Testament is just full of it, where it talks about there's going to be, Messiah is going to be, the servant of the Lord is going to be sitting perpetually on David's throne. He's going to be a son of David. Everybody understood it. It was the correct answer. 1 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, and Jeremiah 23. There's others, but you can, you can look those up. So they were correct. Well, back to verse 43. So Jesus quoted David from Psalm 110, verse 1. Are you following me so far? So far the riddle makes sense. This whole thing makes sense, right? The Lord said to my Lord, what on earth does that mean? And then it says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David says, my Lord, the second one there. Do you see the second one in yellow there? My Lord. David says, my Lord. Who is David's Lord? If not, God himself. So who is David's Lord? God. Exactly. It's God. That's what it says. And, um, uh, and who could be saying to God, my Lord, that's God. We, we established that, right? Who could be saying to God to do something? <laughs> that should make you chuckle right now. <laughs> Does that make sense? Who could be saying to God, sit down at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? Only God could say that. So you could be saying, God said to my God. <laughs> God said to my God, or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies free. God the Father said to God the Son, sit at the right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Is that correct? It's exactly what Jesus was getting at. Now, if I was you, when I was go if I'm going home, if you're not a scholar, and that would be about 99.9% .9 of us, including me, then you should, be, you should take some of these notes and you should scribble it in your Bible so that the next time you can go there and when you read it, you can worship God. Anyway, that's exactly what it says. The Lord said to my Lord. Jesus rightly understood that David is referring to two separate persons as Lord or God. Do you see that? Do you see that? It means David understood. Back in the Old Testament, when he said that, David understood that there was more than one person in the Godhead. There was at least two. It doesn't say there's three. But at least we know there's more than one. Is that correct? David was aware of the plurality of persons in one God. So here's the riddle. Whose son is Messiah? The Pharisees say, help me. Yep, son of David. Jesus says, yes, but Messiah is also son of God. I think that's coming up there. God the son or son of God. So the answer to the riddle is that the Messiah is the son of David and he is God the son or the son of God. Both. 
Is that incredible? And it stumped them because they didn't believe in the concept of multiple persons in, the God, in one God. They didn't believe in that. So when they read David, they couldn't understand that in Psalm 110, verse 1. And that's why Jesus used it to stump them. And what he was really trying to do, if they had really wanted to know, a true seeker would have gone back to him and said, wait a minute, like his disciples did, what on earth were you talking about there? Like, I want to get this. A true heart would have done that. But who knows that not all seekers are true seekers. They're not. They don't want to know the truth. So the answer puzzled them because if Messiah also was God, then there were more persons in the one God. And so they remained quiet. And we see the explicit Trinitarian formula, that's three in one formula, Throughout the New Testament, Jude uh, chapter 1, oh, well, Jude verses 20 to 21, there's only one chapter. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the, help me, Spirit. Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our, that leads to eternal life. I think I'm going to ask the worship team to next uh, uh, week also sing the, that, the, that doctrinal formula that we've, that we've occasionally sung here. I believe in God the Father. I, believe, I think we should sing that one, don't you think? Yes. Uh, I don't know how to play all these instruments at once, so I won't <laughs> do it right now. But the scriptures teach us that Jesus is God. When Thomas doubted that Jesus had risen... And said he wouldn't believe it until, uh, unless he could uh, see the nail prints in Jesus' hands and, and, and thrust his hand in his side. Then Jesus appeared to the disciples when Thomas was present and addressed Thomas directly. He said, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. And when Thomas saw him, that's Jesus, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my everybody? God. And we see other places. Uh, there's numerous other places like that too. But the Holy Spirit is God as well. There's God the Father, God the Son, but there's also God the Holy Spirit. When Ananias and Sapphira lied about land that they had sold then Peter responded, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the... You have not lied to man, but to God. The three persons of the one God are all God. The three persons of the one God are all God. Most prayers in the Bible are addressed to God the Father and some to the Lord Jesus. I've personally found that when I address either of the three in prayer, I get the same reaction. He responds to me. Sometimes I pray to the Father 
And I said, I, I, I begin to, and I go, and I, you know, maybe out of the Lord's Prayer or something, and I'll say, Father, I can't believe that I can even call you Abba, our Father. And I'll start to worship him about that. And the next thing, you know, as I draw near to him, all at once, I just, wow, he's there. Next time I get some, I'm, I'm thinking about what Jesus has done for me and what he set me free from and all of that. And I say, oh, Jesus, I can't believe what, you, what your um, sacrifice on the cross has purchased for me, the freedom that I have. And then I worship him about that, and I thank him for that. And the next thing, as I'm saying, oh, Lord Jesus, I praise you, and I thank you for that, all at once, boom, there he is. And I experience him. Sometimes I've been asking for wisdom. Oh, God, I... Holy Spirit, please give me understanding. Help me to understand this. Or I'll say, God, I don't know which way to turn with this church or with church renewal or something. Should I be doing this or this? Or? And then he'll say, neither do this. And then I'll worship the Holy Spirit for that. And the moment I do, his presence is there. He responds. So let's get... Back to where we started. God is what? Love. There has to be multiple persons within the one God for that statement to be true. And see what Jesus revealed about this. In John chapter 17, he said, I've given them the glory. This is in his prayer to the Father the, the, on the eve of his crucifixion. He, and he's praying to the Father. Jesus is. God the Son is praying to God the I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are what? One. He's saying we're one. We're, we're, we're God. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me, uh, you have given me, to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus revealed that there is perfect love and unity between the persons of the one God. Did you see that? Did you see that, church? Is it, did I underline it there? Yeah, you loved me before the creation of the world. God the Son says to God the Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. God is love because there's love within the community of the th three persons of the one God. That's why he is love. And uh, the Father has always loved the Son. Son always loved the Father. And the Son always loved the Spirit. And they glorify each other. And at the heart of the universe, in its creator, there is real, genuine, selfless love. Always has been and always will be. Praise God. Now, is there any chance of breaking into that perfect circle of love? <laughs> that would be the next question, right? Wow, I'd like to get into that circle of love, wouldn't you? And, and get a shower full of love. And the answer is yes. Back to verse 21, it says, May they also be in us. 
He's saying the, the three in one, the three persons who love each other eternally and have always done and are unified and are one are inviting us into their holy circle of love. Is that amazing, church? We get invited into that. And we'll continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. So he says, I want, Father, I would like to invite them into our circle so that the love we have in our commu divine community, they can have the same love. Wow, what a privilege. Do you know of any religion like that on the planet? other than Christianity? No, there's nothing even close to that. It's incredible. God created mankind because he wanted to bring more persons into the circle of his love. And this is a hallmark of love. True love is never selfish, exclusive, or narrow. It always wants to reach out and embrace others. You say, why did God create us? Because he's love. And love isn't exclusive. True love isn't exclusive. And it just, wants to, it just wants to include more and more. So he said, I'm going to make lots. So that I can love lots. Because that's what love is. It's not narrow. It's not exclusive. You know, it's not like when we had, you know, Fran and I got married. And then uh, Chris came by accident. I always get a kick out of it when people say that. A married couple says that was an accident. What do you mean it was an accident? But anyway, that's another topic. <laughs> I don't know how we got on that. But my wife and I loved each other. And it wasn't like, oh, brother, now here comes Chris. Well, honey, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to split it up. You get, you get half now. He gets the other half. And then, oh, no, another accident. Here comes Julie. Oh. Now we got to split it into three. I can only love you a third now, honey. That's not how love works, does it? We're, we're into 17 grandkids and counting. I don't know when it will end. But there's tremendous love. Would you agree? Yeah. Love works like that. It just wants to grab more. It's not exclusive. It's not narrow wants to reach out and embrace others. So it is entirely consistent that God should want to widen the family and have many more sons to follow and daughters to follow the one he already had. He wants to bring many sons to glory. Amen. Why? So he can love on them. Indeed, Christ was to be the firstborn of many sons that would bring glory into the family. As we might expect, the truth that God loves us is already implicit in Genesis. And God blessed them. Who's them? Adam and Eve. That's who he was talking about. God not only made us to love, uh, made us to love on us, but also to enjoy. That's another whole message or two. Isaiah 62 says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And again, we see this in Genesis. Six times during the course of creation, God stood back and saw that it was. And then he made man at the pinnacle of his creation. After he had made the land, the sky, the seas, then he turned around and he filled it with fish 
and animals and birds. And when it was all ready, he said, okay, you ready for the best thing? He made man. And he stuck him in the middle. He made this planet. He prepared this planet for you and me. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. At the pinnacle of creation. He rejoiced in it. He enjoyed it. He loved it. Because of this, we have meaning in life. God chose to make us for himself so that he could love us and enjoy us. Just this gives us significance in the most ultimate sense. But there's more. He invites and draws us into the divine circle of love, and then we are enabled to love as well. It says in 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. He draws us in that circle of love, and then with the sound drenching of love we get, we're able to love others. When we're drawn into the circle. Now, why is all this so terribly important? And that, by the way, is our purpose, to love and be loved. Now, that, that can be all fleshed out now. What does that mean, then, to love? But that's where we begin. And why is this all so terribly important? Christianity, with its three-in-one God, is religion of love and declares that the greatest principle in life is love. 1 Corinthians 13 says now, Faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest is which? Love. Why? Because in eternity, we're not going to need faith, and we're not going to need hope. Because it'll be realized. We will see God as he is. Amen? We will be with him in the fullest sense. But love is the greatest because it will continue on for eternity. Is that incredible, church? Oh, my goodness. If you take out the Trinity, then it's not true that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If there is no Trinity, then God doesn't love you. If there is no Trinity in God... There, uh, and God, therefore, doesn't love you, then you cannot be forgiven and your guilt removed. If there is no trinity and no love, then you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And if there is no trinity and no love, then there is no hope for after you die. James chapter 4 says, Draw near to God, and he will what? Yeah. Cleanse your heart, you sinners. Uh, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is not a propositional truth to believe. This is an offer to experience. This is not a propositional truth to believe. It's an offer to experience God's love in an experiential way. Our evangelicalism of the last 50 years has done tremendous damage in telling us just to believe propositional truths. 
but not taking us to the fountain of love himself in an experiential sense. July 1998, Fran and I were in Philadelphia. Some of you have heard this before, but you'll hear it again till I die. <laughs> we're there for her third of ten neurosurgeries. We walked into food court on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. For you sports fans, that's Penn State. For supper on the eve of Fran's surgery, we were fearful and we were lonely. No one was there. No one who we knew was there. We walked into the food court, and as we opened the door, and we were going for some pizza, because that's our soul food. It's like manna. <laughs> Very similar. And uh, as we opened the door, the jukebox started. And the song that was playing of all things was, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I, like, I love that song, and I sing it. I was singing it this morning. But the part I don't like about it is, yes, the Bible tells me so, but that's not the only way I know Jesus loves me. I know Jesus because I experience him. Because it says I can draw close to him. Well, the song was singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I just began to weep. We got, our, we got our pizza and we sat down in a booth and it was still playing and we just sobbed. It was, it was, like, it was like waves of liquid love. And when it was finished, we went to the jukebox, we wanted to play it again and we couldn't find it on the jukebox. Hard as we tried, uh, we went to use the alphabetical listing. Now, now maybe it was the tears that we never saw it. But in my journal, it says it was a miracle. Amen. And we just wept as we experienced him. This morning, I was driving to church early in the morning. And I began to sing, Jesus loves me. And as I did, I just wept and wept. I cried all the way to the church. Not because I know some propositional truth, but because as I sang it to him and drew near to him, he showed up in my car. And he will draw nigh to you. You don't have to wait to heaven to know God. You don't have to wait to heaven to experience God. The Trinitarian truth is that God is love. That love has been in the Trinity community for eternity. And he longs to pour it out on you and me. And so he invites you into the circle, draw near. And when you draw near into that circle, you can't help but be loved. <laughs> we have time. Let's sing it. Jesus loves me, this I know, 
For the Bible tells me so Little ones to him belong They are weak but he is strong Sing it out Yes, Jesus loves me Yes, Jesus loves me Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And so does my experience. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. So, let's finish it. How do you draw near to God? You believe in Him. But to all who did receive him, Jesus that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And belief includes repentance, by the way. It's not just some, you turn from your sin and you turn to him. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Number two, you submit to him as Lord of your life. Submit yourselves, there to, uh, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. You've got to submit to him. Number three, you come to him confessing your sins. We just read that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then finally, you come into his courts with thanksgiving. You want to know how to draw near? That's a very simple little formula of how you can draw near. Perhaps you're here, here this morning and uh, you've been wondering about the Christian faith and you're wondering if it's just a bunch of nonsense because of all the propaganda you hear in the media, in the school systems, the education system. And I don't mean our Christian teachers. We got amazing Christian teachers and we're going to be praying for them in September, by the way, teachers. We love you. But the education system is anti-God. The political system, the judicial system, the media, it's all standing, taking its stand against Christ. And so you're fed propaganda. But you heard the truth today. If you receive Jesus, you, you will be able, you are receiving God. You can draw nigh to him. Why don't you pray this prayer with me? Father, I thank you for bringing me here today. I thank you for speaking to my heart through the truth of your word. I've been away from you for a long time, and the best that I know how, I receive you. And I turn from my sins, and I tell you that I want to live for you. I submit myself to you. I want you to be Lord of my life. And I want to thank you for dying on the cross to save me from my sin, to pay the penalty of sin so I could be set free and have a relationship with you. As best as I know, I want to be a Christ follower in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, you meant it from your heart, and today you became a Christian. Congratulations. You've just been drawn into the circle of love. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. 
For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.